Well, hello and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I'm here with Tyler Turner. This is the second time you've been on the podcast, isn't that right? Indeed, I'm a repeat. A repeat, you can't have been that bad. Um, Tyler <laughs> is a member of the congregation here at All Saints. And today, uh, this is going to sound all wrong, we're going to talk about transitioning. That is to say, we're going to talk about um, a, a theological and personal transition that both Tyler and I uh, went through, but in very different ways, different times in our lives, from Baptist to Paedo-Baptist convictions. And uh, I think this could be a particularly helpful topic to broach. I hope we're able to broach it in a helpful way, uh, for the simple reason that uh, this uh, relationship between Reformed Baptist and Reformed Paedo-Baptist Christians is becoming more prominent, I guess, in our circles. Mm. Both in the church context, we have uh, Baptists looking to join us here at All Saints. Mm. We have people who used to be Baptists who've already joined us. And we're blessed to have Baptist churches around us. And we don't want at all to give the impression of the wrong kind of distancing ourselves from them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we thank God for them. I see quite a bit of uh, fellowship going on as well. Yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, there are social contexts where mm-hmm. um, guys from all saints, uh, ladies from all saints are hanging out with Baptist friends and so on. So mm. um, the danger in all that context is that um, we either don't talk about the theology and don't talk about the practicalities of thinking through this stuff, or mm. we do talk about it and we talk about it in the wrong way. And so yeah. I'm hopeful that by just working through some of the thoughts that we've had over the years. Um, this isn't supposed to be any kind of blueprint, but maybe there'll be some things that we can learn from. and um, We can draw out some of the salient theological issues and maybe point to yeah. some of the dangers um, that we need to avoid just in a- approaching these questions the wrong way. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, let's, let's talk about history first. Do you want to go first or shall I? Um, um, you go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, mine's kind of a bit simpler in a sense, although it's probably more different from the experience that most people may be likely to be familiar with here in a, a Texan context. I was raised from quite an early age in an Anglican church in England. Uh, I was never baptized as an infant because my mum and my late father were not believers at that time. My mum uh, was really started going to church around about just after the time my father died when I was about four years old and from then on we were going to church I wasn't baptized then I I uh, became well I grew in a very childlike faith in my early teenage years uh, sincere I think but quite ill-informed it wasn't an evangelical church I was going to much less a reformed one by any means but I, along with a bunch of my contemporaries, was baptised and confirmed, which is an Anglican and Episcopalian and Roman Catholic, actually, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was baptised and confirmed about the age of 16. That was quite a meaningful moment for me as a kind of... <laughs> I, I understood it to be a kind of profession of faith, which is, ironically, I think now, is about the one thing that baptism isn't in the Bible. But, um, but anyway, I was baptised in that context. And then, uh, as I, the years grew past, I went to college... It was at college, really, that I encountered evangelical and Calvinistic and some Reformed teaching for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, interestingly, was mostly in an Anglican setting, but it was in an Anglican setting where baptism was really not a big thing. In the student world in England, 
there's a self-conscious effort not to talk about anything that might cause differences of opinion between Anglican sure. and non-Anglican Christians. Really, that's for the sake of unified evangelistic ministry on college campuses. Mm. So we didn't and weren't encouraged to talk or really think about um, the sacraments or a whole bunch of other things. We, we had great um, teaching about um, the soteriological core of the gospel, about godliness and holiness in the Christian life, but not much else. And uh, so really, as I started then in my early and mid-twenties to think about full-time Christian ministry, I, it was in a context like that. I, I interned at a, uh, an Anglican church in London for three years, mm. between 2000 and 2003, after finishing doctoral work. And so I interned there. And again, that was a great context for learning about preaching and pastoral ministry and uh, a really wonderful, vibrant community life in the congregation but sacraments weren't a big deal and I think I became a Baptist more or less by default yeah. um, that's not to say that everyone who is a Baptist does that at all quite the contrary but I just I couldn't see the theological framework that justified baptism uh, but what started to happen just before probably in the year before moving to seminary uh, in 2003 where I went as an Anglican, uh, so it's odd, being kind of Baptist by default, but going into an Anglican seminary as an Anglican ordinate, I started to think about baptism. I read a few things. I read something by W.H. Griffith Thomas. I think I probably read bits of Calvin. Hmm. And I could tell there was something here that I didn't fully understand, which I thought, if I could get my head around this, it seems like it would be quite persuasive. But I, I knew that there's something here I didn't get. I felt like uh, an eight-year-old drinking, you know, a $300 bottle of red wine, not a whole bottle, you know, sipping <laughs> a, a tiny amount of this. Uh, and a, a wise eight-year-old, and I don't make any pretense to be particularly wise at this stage of my life, but I think the smart thing for an eight-year-old to do at that point would not be to say, that's horrible. They might say, mm, I don't really get that but it's $300 a bottle. There must be something there. And I could see there's something in this theology that I didn't understand. And then really what happened, I, I, I got thrown into seminary, a whole bunch of stuff related to covenant theology, and maybe we'll get into this um, later on. But by the end of my first year at seminary, so summer 2004, when our son Ben was about nine months old, I... Um, I was pretty much convinced I think we should baptise him, we should get him baptised. And I remember talking to one of my professors about this, and I said, so, you know, um, hey, David, what, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I talked him through my thinking, and he said, and I quote, well, you've missed the eighth day already. <laughs> <laughs> Which will, that will give you some sense of um, the, the, the kind of texture of the hermeneutical approach that we, we were being gloriously saturated in there's a sense of continuity between the covenants and therefore continuity of some kind between the old and new covenant sacraments so mm -hmm. eighth day circumcision come on you're nine months in isn't it about time <laughs> and so um ben was baptized in 2004 um actually in the college chapel uh, by the vicar of the church we were then attending and mm. and i guess i i would say i've been blessed to grow in my understanding of that and the theological background to it over the years so mm. In one sense, it was socially very easy. Yeah. I was surrounded by a mixture of Baptists and Pater Baptists, 
and we all got on fine. Mm. And sometimes we debated these things. But really, that's different from the context that many folks may find themselves in here in the US and particularly in the American South or in Texas and in Fort Worth, Mm -hmm. where my impression is, and this is obvious pastorally, that there's more possibility of a more turbulent transition, right? Sure. So that's probably closer to where you are. Tell us about um, your Baptist to pay the Baptist life story. (laughs) Yes. Well... I'll illustrate your last your last statement by saying that my uh, my own parents came to our children's baptism here as we were uh, inducted into a membership, and and my parents' response, my mother specifically, was, uh, "Are you sure you're not Roman Catholic?" Because <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. it's kind of those are those are the the two options really that that are mostly familiar in, in Texas, mm-hmm. less and less so. So it's, it's Baptist or Roman Catholic, yes. right? Um, yeah. yeah. So grew up uh, Southern Baptist roots uh, in a church highly dispensational. Um, I would even say semi Pelagian, um, mm-hmm. and so very much of a Jesus is the get out of jail free card, um, mm-hmm. and. And so, um, such that uh, also, you know, um, as we say, walked down the aisle and um, was baptized at a young age, 10, 11 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And similar thing, I, I, I look back at those years and think that God protected me from a lot of things, um, but um, it wasn't really until college years that those things became became real, meaningful, um, and I started to really try to understand more, be acquainted with some firmer theological understandings through good teachers and whatnot. Um, right. And so I, I was invited back to my home church during my college years to, to preach what we call a baccalaureate service, I don't mm. know, graduating seniors, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and preached through uh, Ezekiel 36, and <laughs> yes. and I had just, you know, in my own still very dispensationalist view, though I didn't know what that was at the time, um, had I had always felt that if God was the author of all the scriptures, yes. then all of it must be authoritative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, unless there was some specific reason why we should be abrogating anything, mm-hmm. um, then we should take it all seriously. And that was just always a presupposition that I came right. to the scriptures with. And so I read, when I read that... So I will uh, sprinkle clean like, water on you yeah, and you will be clean. It's like, this sounds... A little bit like baptism. Gospel-like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, quite a bit. And so I just, I mean, my very simple understanding just walked through that passage and God is, you know, has every right to be angry with us. God has every right to hmm. condemn those who have profaned his name. And though all of the blessings that he has showered upon us and having, having the word of God and whatnot. Hmm. And, yeah. and, the, uh, um, and yet the sprinkling clean, the, you know, changing a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And, and the grace that is given through those things. And, and I had... I just, you know, walked through the gospel story using this passage out of Ezekiel 36. And I had men who were my father's age coming up to me afterwards saying, I've been in church my entire life and I've never Mm. heard that. Right, right. Um, And so that was the context that I was 
had grown up in. And so college and beyond, basically, it was an eventual introduction into um, uh, John Piper, which would be very familiar right. to yep. most yep. people. Um, and then through Piper uh, introduced to Ligonier, Ligonier, R.C. Sproul, and his posse. Right, yes. Um, and, and that's an interesting um, connection, in a sense, right? Because yeah. um, the late R.C. Sproul, uh, Senior, and John Piper, uh-huh. I mean, much of the time <clears throat> from the things that they did together in various contexts, you would not know, you, you would not be led to believe that baptism is some huge dividing line between them. Although, right. it was a theological difference, yes. right? And, and is. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And um, and really, you know, so I'm, I'm getting, was getting drawn into the Reformed thinking, way mm-hmm. of thinking, more and more and more. Yeah. Um, and eventually, we ended up overseas for a few years, and, um, and so it was primarily through thinking through ecclesiology mm-hmm. in a context where we were thinking, obviously, through church planting issues and then granted this is all we were already overseas engaging in this yeah. in this work that we were still trying to figure out as we went and um so sacramentology was still on the back of my mind yeah um not necessarily the forefront but at some point i turned around and, and just realized took a, taking account of my ecclesiology and the teachers that i benefit from the most realized Almost everyone that I love to learn from the most mm. are Presbyterian, Reformed, and they hold a specific view of the sacraments. Right, um, right, right. And so maybe that, you know, warrants a little bit more exploration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I point back to this presupposition of, of there was something about that that was speaking to me about the continual, the, the continuity of Scripture and mm. the authority of all of the Scriptures, again, without specific um, any interruptions that are, that are legitimate to the Scriptures themselves and the way right. in which God right. has brought these things about. Yes. Um, and so that actually um, eventually got me to um, a seminary situation where first class was covenant theology. Okay. And so I knew that... Uh, I decided to go to Reformed Theological Seminary um, to start out, um, and I knew that the baptism question would be something that I would need to wrestle through at some point. Um, I didn't realize how quickly that would come about. <laughs> While you're starting with Covenant Theology. Yeah, exactly. Gonna... <laughs> By the recommendation of my uh, academic uh, uh, counselor, um, of course, I'm sure plenty on, on, on his knowledge of where I was and where I needed to be if I was going to be fruitful in my yeah, studies yeah. at RTS. So, um, but once I realized that's where the direct, that's the direction the class was going and they weren't right. pushing the baptism question, but simply presenting covenant theology. And mm. then I made my own connections as far as the sacraments are yes. concerned. But I went ahead and said, all right, well, if I'm going to wrestle through this, I need to wrestle through it well. So yeah. Got the required textbooks. Obviously, you know we're reading Klein and and Legan Duncan is teaching through a um, video lecture series, and so I'm getting the Presbyterian view. Let's go ahead and go get the Reformed Baptist Covenant theologians and mm. do my due diligence. Um, yes, read yes. both at the same time. Read the read the arguments. Try to weigh them. Um, and even, you know, so there's newer guys like the Renahans, um, mm-hmm. but even going back to the 
um, the particular Baptists um, yes. in the 17th century, the Nehemiah Cox and, and, and whatnot, trying to, okay, and that was actually one of my final papers was comparing, uh, I think, John Murray's covenant theology to Nehemiah Cox's, which mm-hmm. is kind of a weird comparison, but I um, was just trying to make sense of, okay, these, these guys were the ones that really felt strongly enough about it to separate, Yes. then let's... They're not inheriting anything, right? Yeah. And so let's so go back and weigh those arguments, yeah, yeah, yeah. no matter where they ended up leading to. And quite often, the older arguments which have survived are the best ones, sure. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have survived for so long. Mm-hmm. So they might not be all right. They can't all be right because they're not in agreement with each other. But yes. nonetheless, there's a, there's a reason why Calvin, for example, has stuck around for so long. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so it's interesting. Just that narrative has highlighted a bunch of things and. I mean, before we get into the covenant theology question, because that might be where we should end up in the sense that it's the structure of covenant theology that that gives the framework within which a right understanding of the sacraments is found. Yeah. But just a couple of things that jumped out of me from what you said. I, your father's reaction to seeing your children baptized. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to say, you know what? It's not that I agree no, we're not Roman Catholic. We're small C Catholic in the sense of one holy Catholic apostolic church. But mm-hmm. I can readily sympathize with that question, mm-hmm. at least up to the point of saying we have some kind of obligation to explain how our view of baptism is different from Roman Catholics. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, just just to speak briefly to that, and then maybe you tell me if you want to add anything, I'd want to say that um, absolutely... We don't teach either the necessity of baptism in the Roman Catholic sense. Mm -hmm. We don't teach the ex opera operato doctrine of baptism in the Roman Catholic sense. It's a Latin phrase meaning by the work performed. Right. Right. Um, And the reason we don't is because we don't locate the efficacy in the element of water itself. So Mm -hmm. that... the it's it's not the case that there's something in the water right that is um miraculous or magic in some sense mm-hmm. uh and it's really remarkable even in anglican churches never mind roman catholic churches mm-hmm. in some episcopalian contexts the the font will not drain into the regular drains it'll go straight down into the earth because there's some sense that this water ought not to be mixed with ordinary water. And I want to say, look, um, a right reformed understanding of baptism might look superficially, or or at least the reformed practice of baptism might look superficially like a Roman Catholic one. Right. Because there's a baby and an infant, and at All Saints, the ministers are wearing robes and clerical collars. Right. That looks a bit Catholic to me. I can totally understand that. But what we're doing is not what a Roman Catholic priest thinks he's doing. Sure. I don't want to say, and I even mentioned this in a service not long ago, it's a sign of a covenant relationship, like a a wedding ring or a wedding band is a sign of a covenant relationship, which Mm -hmm. is so, this is Calvin now, it's so closely identified in scriptural terms with the relationship that you can speak of the sign as bringing about the the fruits of the relationship. So the fruits of our relationship with Christ are... We're one with him in his death and resurrection. We're saved in him. We're sanctified in him. Mm -hmm. And so scripture attributes to the sign those blessings. 
and the analogy I, I love to use, and I think is a helpful one, is the uh, old English Book of Common Prayer marriage liturgy, which actually says, with this ring I thee wed, mm-hmm. with my body I honour you, and so on. Mm-hmm. And well, what does that mean? Well, it means that this sign, the ring, is a sign of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. It's, a, it's not just a, a sign like a road sign, where you take the road sign away and nothing changes. Yeah. It's a, a seal. Um, Calvin uses the illustration of uh, the king's seal at the end of a document yeah. that he's written. The yeah. king's written the document. The king means it. Um, it. It's true. It's in his scribe's hand, and he will uphold and endorse whatever's written in it. Yeah. But until it has the seal, it doesn't have the king's authority. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing statement to make about baptism. But what it doesn't yeah. say is that clay or wax that is the seal has some kind of magical miraculous quality right it's a sign which is attached to the words uh-huh. which is of course a calvinist thought is a right these are is a seal on the, the promise of the word right um which means now this applies to you mm-hmm. so when we have the child or adult <clears throat> matter baptized in in church uh, or uh, by analogy, receiving the sign of the covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. I want to say, look, how, how do you know that these words of forgiveness and assurance belong to you? Well, you've got the seal on you. You're taking the sign into yourself in the mm-hmm. Lord's Supper. So that, I guess, is a, a thought. I, I don't know that that would allay all the concerns of your father right. <laughs> I mean, or another Baptist uh, community at all. But I at least think it's reasonable for them to say, so how is this not Roman Catholic? Right, um, and so just as with the Lord's Supper, the, the, the bread doesn't turn into anything. Yeah, bread is just ordinary bread, mm-hmm. and after you finish with it, the kids can just grab the rest and just mm-hmm. you know, eat what's left over. Yeah, and I would say there, there's a focus on the communal aspect of it as yes, well, right? Yes. The, because the sign, both in in communion and in baptism, is mm. a, is a communal sign. Yes, which is why we don't. We don't want people taking communion by themselves at home. Right, exactly. Right, is we're we're displaying the communal aspect, and so um, I actually think, um, and this is this is one thing I know others have drawn attention to this of a, a Baptist church's um, desire for something to take place when a baby is born into a Christian family. Right, right, right. right. And so they come up <laughs> to, to a baby dedication, or Thanksgiving, right. or something. Or think, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so they and there there's a recognition there, and I think a good and right recognition, yes, yes, right, yes. that there is some kind of responsibility. There's a communal aspect to the raising of this child, mm-hmm. um, and in, there's some kind of privilege that attaches to yes. Christian family membership. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, that would be something, even in the Roman Catholic view of the ex opere operato, is it's it's really focusing on the individual, what's happening with right, that individual right. person. Yes. So this person is getting this sacramental um, Popeye spinach infusion of power, <laughs> right. right? Rather than no, this person is being welcomed into this community. Mm-hmm. So I, Peter Lighthart actually makes this point in I think it's the baptized body, or maybe it's elsewhere. Uh-huh. There is a biblical ex opera operato by the work performed mm. efficacy of baptism, but it's not what the Roman Catholic said. Is yeah. is not that it's there's something in the water which transfuses something into you. Mm-hmm. It's rather that, again, by analogy with the wedding ring, if you say, stop the service, well, the service hasn't been completed. Mm-hmm. You're not married. Yeah. Um, then you carry on with the service, then it's done. 
So what's happening with the child is the child, I've often said, would be is being formally welcomed in. Yeah. We welcome them informally because they are already a member by right. They already have the right to be recognised as such. Right. And so at the <clears throat> earliest opportunity, um, within the first few weeks or months, we'll say, great, we'll bring them in and we'll have their formal welcome into the covenant people. Yeah. And what do you need to be? Well, by virtue of what are we members of the covenant people? It's the sprinkling of the clean water of the spirit, mm-hmm. which is symbolised in the outpoured waters of baptism. So yeah. it's, a, it's a very fitting sign. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, again, I, I think um, you're seeing a lot of different things here which focus attention on the distinctive nurse and significance of baptism right yeah absolutely and i and that was one of the convincing things for me is you know going back again to my covenant theology studies is 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 the i think that is kind of at at a root level a a distinction Mm -hmm. of the 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 emphasis on the individuality yes versus the the corporateness corporateness, right Which we'd say there's there's also there's a discontinuity versus the continuity kind of distinction that mm. you would see emphasis on one or the other. Um, yeah. But in it and it's hard necess- to understand which one I guess comes from which. But but there is a, a commitment to some yes. a higher yes. level of indiv- individuality yes. there that you don't don't see as much scripturally. Yes. yes, yes. Right? So and I I guess I want to say and just another thing this and this not by way of um, uh, any attempt to. Uh, patronize or give a false sense of superficial agreement with Baptist Christian friends. Sure. But simply to say, a lot of what they want to affirm, I also want to affirm. So right. if somebody professes faith as an adult mm-hmm. and they've not been baptized, they should be baptized. Yeah. And I also think um, a Baptist would likely, or at least many Baptists, would not react. Yeah, many Baptists would not react in the way those. Uh, older gentleman did in the church where you preach that sermon on Ezekiel 36. Mm-hmm. Many Baptists have had the privilege of of hearing perhaps some of the richer and deeper yes. um, Baptist Calvinist theology mm-hmm. that does see in those Old Testament images mm-hmm. great baptismal significance, and not least in uh, Ezekiel 36. I think back to a previous couple of conversations I had with Tyler Bauer, mm-hmm. one of the teachers at the Oaks Academy that meets here at All Saints. Right. And I'm I didn't ask him about that particular text, but I'm very sure that he would have his head in his hands at, at the comment by the gentleman in your church. He would feel like he's stuck halfway between us because he'd want to say, sure. well, I don't affirm the the claim that baptism should be administered to babies, but I do think all the other stuff you said about the privilege of being in a Christian home and and certainly the hermeneutical continuity with some of these Old Testament types mm-hmm. and so on. Right. So I... I guess the underlying point there, as we as we're thinking as uh, reformed paedobaptists, we need to reckon with the complexity and texture of the Baptist world. Yes, absolutely. And and to be honest, there are there are not terribly thought through paedobaptists. Oh, of course. And there yeah. are not terribly thought through Baptists. Of course. By God's grace, yeah. Uh, all heading um, for uh, uh, the same kingdom where all our eyes will be open wider. <laughs> At the same time, there are Baptists who have very, very well worked through mm. theological outlook, and hopefully, as 
Reformed Presbyterians, we're trying to fulfill our obligation to head in that direction as well. Right. And right. I think the point you made about the covenant theology background is really where, where all this heads, right? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I would make a note first um, mm-hmm. is, is that, you know, we're, we're talking about transitioning, as it were, um, and... You know, reclaiming that vocabulary. Reclaim, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> baptizing it. Yes, baptizing the vocabulary and, and <laughs> um, conquering the Egyptians. Yeah, so that's a, it's an important point to make sure that you know well why the change is happening and that you do mm-hmm. do your diligence with a good conscience. And it's yes. an, I think it's an important point because of the... The state that we find ourselves in is is a state where we have a lot of men with a lot of animosity, mm-hmm. um, and so um, a lot of reactions that are taking place, right? That are more maybe cultural reactions yes, that yes, turn yes. into theological reactions, yeah, um, yeah. as opposed That's to well reasoned theological convictions from Scripture, right, right, um, right. or personalities that I'm, you know, that personality is speaking culturally the way that I feel, and so I'm going to fall into whatever categories theologically right, right, that right. he sets out. I mean, and, and let me be honest, I mean, we, we see this all around us. Yeah. So tragically, let's say, uh, large numbers of Baptist churches um, going woke faster than you can say mm-hmm. implicit bias training, yeah. and then somebody suddenly finds a paid Baptist who will stand against that. Right. So the danger is you associate Baptist with woke and paid Baptist with not woke. And I'm here yeah. to tell you that tragically there are many paid Baptist reformed churches yes. that are heading in that same terrible direction as well. So right. let's, let's do our Baptist friends the dignity uh-huh. of recognizing there are many biblical, conservative, principled, courageous mm-hmm. men and women who are trying to stand culturally mm-hmm. against the same sort of things that we're conscious of. Yeah. So I know that's really helpful. Yeah. And, and, I, and your observation about the, I mean, you said young men, maybe it's not just young men, it's, it, maybe it's just a danger for all of us we get. If we hear somebody giving voice to our frustrations mm-hmm. with the culture, mm-hmm. uh, we can gravitate to that so fast that we forget ourselves. Yes. Uh, and then we end up appropriating the, the sharp-edged rhetoric and directing it against people who... Now, our Baptist friends, many of them will be totally bewildered mm-hmm. at the thought that we're thinking that they are any less concerned about the direction of our culture. Well, they're just as concerned as we are. They just don't think that covenant signs should be applied until somebody professes faith in their own voice, right? So, right. Right. now that might be, we might disagree with that, but let's at least identify, as it goes to the point of understanding other people, identify what the difference of opinion actually is. Right. And you mentioned a bunch of stuff that you'd read, um, both on the Baptist side mm-hmm. and on the Reformed Pedobaptist side, yeah. and the background of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. Do you want to, I mean, this is a big ask, do you want to sketch how that background, what, what, that, what it was about that covenant theology background that led you in this direction in terms of your theology of baptism and infant baptism in particular? Yeah, um, it's been a while since I've read the books, so I, it, it'll be hard for me to be specific. I wasn't asking you to quote. Yeah, but, but, okay. It'll but be hard. You, but, I mean, the but, big picture is um, yeah, is yeah, kind of informative, picture. isn't it? What I, I think the the big picture for me was that ultimately I felt like the the Reformed Baptist uh, covenant theologians were having to do more dancing around, um, and 
the the actual continuities that I saw scripturally mm-hmm. um, that they were having to kind of reason away things that were that should have been seemingly a little bit more clear. Right. So, yeah. uh, for example, um, the old covenant inclusion of whole families. Yes. Um, what is the catalyst for a major, fundamental, radically different way that God approaches His covenant family mm-hmm. in the new covenant, yes. um, and the and the exclusion that, that would therefore take place um, in a wider um, version of His grace, in a, in mm-hmm. a sense, or the opening up of His new covenant to where now everyone has a has a similar footing. <clears throat> in Christ, drawing near to him by the blood of Christ, right? Yeah. Um, and so what is it then that is actually causing, again, some kind of abrogation of the way in which God saw his, his people, mm. including the children of the families of God, um, and made him now all of a sudden is rejecting that. Right. Um, yeah. Now there's, so, there's, there's ways of viewing the Spirit's work, like what exactly is happening when the Spirit mm. comes, um, and in terms of, you know, and especially through the Calvinism lens of trying to preserve some kind of perseverance of the saints. Yes. yes right. Yes. And so what do we do with people that have that have been baptized, but then are falling away? Um, and I and I understand the the desire then to try to preserve those things which are near and dear to our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, but. At the um, at the expense, I, I think the cost is too great. Right, right. Is, is what so, I found. So the, I mean, uh, to paraphrase slightly, t- tell me if this is what you have in mind. As mm-hmm. I as I look at the older administrations of the covenant or the older covenants, yeah. Uh, take for example the promise to Abraham, yeah. Genesis seventeen. Clearly, God commits to being God to you and to your children after you, even to the point where by the end of verse eight of mm-hmm. Genesis seventeen. Abraham has disappeared from the scene, and it's just Abraham's son. I'll right. be his God. Right. Now, that's the promise that's quoted on the day of Pentecost, mm-hmm. um, or referred to on the day of Pentecost, where yeah. Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, because it's the promise of the Spirit, which is the, the fulfillment, according to Galatians 3, of the gospel preached in advance to Abraham. Yes. And so when Peter then says, well, repent and be baptized, uh, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sin, um, for the promises for you and for your children right. is what he says. Right. It's like, oh, just in case there should be any doubt, mm-hmm. it's that and for your children, which is specifically highlighted as, as a point of the older covenants, which are continued and fulfilled right. in the new covenant in Christ. Right. Similarly, I always think of uh, that golden text at the end of Mary's song in Luke 1, um, where she specifically highlights the to Abraham and his children forever. Yeah. His children forever. As the aspect, well, one of the aspects of the covenant promises that God is fulfilling in this baby that she's been told she's going to give birth to. Right. So, within that framework, I mean, I, I guess I'm rephrasing what you said. There's, mm-hmm. there seem to be lots of, there's two, there's a bunch of others we could go to, mm-hmm. specific scriptural indications of continuity at precisely this point mm-hmm. where children are concerned. Right. In the unfolding plan of God's covenants, so it's difficult then mm-hmm. to see why children will be excluded. Hence, your initial comment that that exclusion almost needs to be inserted by those Baptist writers who 
want to argue for the discontinuity at that point. Right. And the argument is all is oftentimes that the New Testament is not explicit right. either direction right. necessarily in thou shalt baptize babies or not. Right. right, right? right. Um, and so that's that's often pointed to as well. Is okay, well if it's not explicit, then it needs to be implicit, or at the very least, it needs to be explicitly stated again, if there's a right, fundamental right, right. difference. There's a change. Right. See, because at that point, I, I, I recognize the apparent persuasiveness, mm-hmm. pers- persuasiveness of the it's not explicit point yeah. in relation to infant baptism. Yeah. But I think that misconceives the nature of the argument, because the point is not we're arguing for the continuity of infant baptism. There was no baptism right. under the Old Covenant. Right. What we're arguing is that, first and foremost, the structure of the covenant itself, mm-hmm. that is to say, the structure of the relationship that God is building yes. with his people, yeah. develops and changes over time. One of the ways that it doesn't change mm. is that Christ comes, the Spirit is poured out, and now children are excluded. Right. That's not what happens. And it's explicitly not what happens because Luke 1, Acts 2, and elsewhere. Right. So given that children are explicitly included in the new covenant fulfillment of the promises, which mm-hmm. are yes and amen in Jesus, children are explicitly included. It's not that, well, we're now looking for a, an explicit verse about baptism. Mm-hmm. You, you know what's going to happen with the covenant sign, which as it happens has changed. And yeah. the nature of the change of the sign is significant as well. Right. I think sometimes, and just to divert slightly and then we'll come back, um, sometimes Reformed paedobaptists are so keen to emphasize the covenant sign being given to children mm-hmm. that they just say, well, baptism has replaced circumcision and therefore children should be baptized. I want to say, whoa, hold on a second. Yes, kind of, but didn't you notice all the changes? Yeah. You've got a ritual of, um, let's not be too crude about it, but bloodshed and cutting off right. applied to some boys, mm-hmm. which is now fulfilled in a ritual of washing right. and uh, welcome and inclusion because it's applied to all. Right. I want to say those differences are pretty significant. Mm-hmm. In the Old Covenant, the sign represents the curse that will come upon you if you break relationship, mm-hmm. cut off, mm-hmm. bloodshed. Yeah. In the New Covenant, the sign represents the blessing if you fulfill the relationship, washing, purifying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a point that Palmer Robertson makes in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, mm-hmm. that we, our attention can be so closely drawn to defending infant baptism that we forget let's think about baptism (laughs) like it's the 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 change is as significant as what's continuous and that and i think that's helpful as well and and now it might not be particularly immediately interesting to somebody who just wants to debate do we baptize kids or not but i think we don't want to allow our like i said our attention to be diverted away from Mm. other significant questions yeah so the new covenant is greater in every way right um, even the sign now is a sign that everybody has inclusion, mm-hmm. which represents washing and purity. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I, I guess I. Hmm. It's, it's not that I I don't recognise back to your explicit implicit point. It's not that I don't recognise that, but I think yeah, it's asking the wrong question. Right. And it, and it comes <clears> down <throat> to 
covenant theological structure? What's yeah. the structure of God's relationship with his people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So suppose we just think, um, there's a couple of other questions I want to pick up. And, and one of them was like this perseverance question. Mm-hmm. Um, so we baptise, I baptised a uh, baby just recently here mm-hmm. at All Saints. We've seen other kids baptised. It's a wonderful privilege, such a joy. This happens in paid Baptist churches all across the land, week by week, wonderfully, gloriously. Mm-hmm. And yet, tragically, we all know the painful reality that statistically some of those children are likely to grow up and not embrace as adults enduringly the faith which is professed yeah. at their baptism. Yeah. The faith that their baptism itself points to. Mm-hmm. Um. And yet we want to affirm the perseverance stroke preservation of the saints. I want to affirm that all those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world will, without fail, endure to glory. I'm pretty sure you want to affirm the same thing. Yes. And uh, here we are <laughs> baptising kids who've made no profession for themselves. Right. Aren't we running the risk of exacerbating this terrible problem mm-hmm. by filling the church with, unbaptized, with baptised pagans? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you must have thought about this. I've got some thoughts. I want to hear you talk about it then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm not one to necessarily enjoy pragmatic arguments, but I, growing up in a, <laughs> growing growing up in a situation where we see a lot of baptized, you know, yeah. professors of faith who mm-hmm. look very little like the, um, you know, and again, this mm-hmm. is obviously a sweeping statement of my own experience, but. Um, baptized adults that had made professions of faith that looked nothing yeah, like Christ and, and yeah. or the, his followers. And, and, so. and some, in some cases don't even profess to. Right, right. right. And so um, it's not, it, you know, in my mind, it's not hard to, to disassociate mm. a profession of faith from efficacy yes. of the baptism, yeah. you know, of saying, okay, well, if we're trying to make sure that, and this is where generally that, that, form of thinking goes is if we're trying to align professing of professing a faith with the efficacy of that faith or at least the that the faith is genuine yes right yes, yes. Um, then we have to take if we don't want that to be the outcome of right. these professing non-believers um, professing professing as believers but actually walking as non-believers yeah. or carnal Christians as some would go <laughs> dispensationalists yeah. would go to but we'd say well we have to take extra care and walk a long ways with them you know for years maybe Mm. to actually make absolutely sure that they know explicitly what they're committed to and and that they're before Mm. they get back before they really receive the sign and seal and um and so which places a a higher bar than what i think scripture does so so you're going to baptize fewer people right right Right. so this is a i think a uh Again, this is not an easy subject or a fun subject to discuss, but uh-huh. the, the logic of the argument is you'd end up baptizing nobody. In mm-hmm. other words, if what you're going to do is say, we only want to baptize people who we are absolutely sure mm-hmm. are capital E elect from before the foundation of the world. Well, that's one of the things that's hidden in Deuteronomy 29 29. Right. right. Um, and therefore, the logic of that. It starts towards restricting baptism to older and older ages and right. placing more and more stringent qualifications so that, you know, um, thief on the cross, not baptized, could be in 
right. glory. Yep. The disciples, clueless as they are, the early Christians, clueless as many of them were, baptized. Right. Will be in glory, but they a, can never get into your church. Right? <laughs> right. Being a missionary in an Islamic context. Right. You know, where, okay, are you this person that's going to suffer, potentially die within a year of, of expressing any kind of faith? Right. 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 But you're not going to baptize him yet. Because you're not sure. Because right. you're not sure. Right. Right. So I think the, the, the flip side, the, the way to address this, I think, is to say, look, we, we're all committed to, to baptizing people. Right. Uh, therefore, we all need. Baptist or paedo-baptist, we mm-hmm. all need to find a way of articulating a response to this problem of seed on rocky ground mm-hmm. or seeds, seed sown among thorns. Right, right. Uh, and our doctrine of baptism won't do it in the sense that we, we can't solve the problem by delaying baptism indefinitely. Mm-hmm. How are we going to... We need to have a theological framework that allows us to make sense of this. Yeah. It's interesting to me, one of the books I read from a Baptist perspective a number of years ago, it constantly vacillated back and forth between saying, we only baptise those who we know are true Christians. Mm-hmm. And we only baptise those whom we have reasonable grounds to believe are true Christians. I right. want to say, look, those two are different things. <laughs> you can't actually do the first in the sense in which you want to do it. Right. You can do the second, but if you're going to do the second, then you should be doing what we do because right. the way you know somebody belongs to the Lord is whether the Lord says they belong to him. Mm-hmm. Genesis 17, 8, Acts 2, Luke 1 and so on. Right. So now that still leaves us with the problem of describing the, let's say, the adulterous husband. Oh, mm-hmm. look, well, there's an illustration. Mm-hmm. In other words, if we take seriously baptism as a covenant sign Mm -hmm. we all know that tragically just as there are people who are baptized and then turn away from christ there are men and women who marry and turn away from their wives and husbands Uh, and it's no accident that scripture associates idolatry with adultery Mm -hmm. in various places so yeah now it's not that that person was not a husband Uh, they had some kind of relationship with the lord or with their wife, mm-hmm. or that person wasn't a wife, they had some kind of relationship, but they had something which they then walked away from, which may indicate some lack of sincerity at the beginning, right. may indicate that there was some developing lack of sincerity yeah. through the relationship. And I think that's, it's a scriptural way to parse what's happening. Sometimes people are baptised and never profess faith meaningfully. This was the situation in the church that I grew up in as a kid. We it was a Church of England parish church, and mm. we had people who come to us, and we'd see them once and once only, and it's when they brought their kid to be baptised. Mm. And they basically couldn't wait to get out of church to go to the pub across the road after the service. And that, we never saw them again. And yeah. it's one of the tragedies of many Church of England settings. Um, it may be that some people go through the motions, perhaps at an older age, knowing a kind of degree of conscious hypocrisy in their hearts. Yeah. More likely, what happens is that people develop a kind of coldness of heart along the lines of seed on rocky ground, mm-hmm. seed sown among thorns. But that gives us a framework for describing those situations. I think what's also helpful is that it gives us a pastoral approach to helping to avoid it, mm-hmm. humanly speaking. Yeah. We're not trying to overturn the decree of God, but Paul says, Colossians 1, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Right. Jesus' encouragement in John 15 to remain in the vine, abide in me. Right. 
Um, make your calling an election sure. Make right? your calling an election sure. Yep. Um, show by your fruit, Mark four, that you are the seed on good soil, and it will right. turn out on the last day that you were. Yes, you're not trying to second guess the doctrine of election. You're just recognizing that we see contingently just this day that's mm-hmm. in front of us. Mm-hmm. Walk faithfully today. And you can look back then to your baptism in faith and see it as the sign that marks the beginning of your formal relationship right. with the people of God. Right. Just as a married man and woman can look at the ring on their finger and say that, that marks the beginning of my formal married relationship with my wife. And because of this, because this means something to me, yeah. I'm going to continue. Right. Uh, and perish the thought that a man should look at his wedding ring and think, you know what, uh, Right. Whatever. Well, and, <clears throat> and to me, that goes back to understanding covenant theology rightly is that everyone in the world is either in a in a state of covenant faithfulness or covenant rejection. Right. Because it's a covenant in Adam. In the end, right. Honest, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it makes more sense of yes, that yes. of they're not having to take an individual step to include themselves in the covenant. God mm-hmm. has already accommodated to us yes. to make a relationship with the, the, the men, mm-hmm. the, the mankind that he created. And so um, if they're walking in unfaithfulness, then that is a, an outright rejection, and they're doing that explicitly. Yes, yes. And so that it makes more sense of, of again, that's, that's a continual message throughout the Scriptures. Yeah. Right? And that's actually helpful because that yeah. highlights some ways in which these different old older covenantal eras are related to each other. Yes. You, you, Again, this is Palmer Robertson paraphrased. Yeah. The, the covenant with Abraham is a way of fixing the problems that stemmed from Adam's breaking of uh-huh. the covenant in the garden. Yeah. And and obviously there's a, the reinstatement of that covenant in the days of Noah. In other words, what's happening is, yes, we're all of Adam, man, mm-hmm. is in covenant with God in Adam, yeah. Adam, man. Mm-hmm. And yet, that covenant having failed by Adam and Eve's breach of it. Mm-hmm. God has instated a new uh, covenant, the covenant with Abraham, which has been developed, Moses, David, Nehemiah, mm-hmm. Christ. It's reached its flourishing. And now yeah. all those who've broken the Adamic covenant, which is everybody, are welcome to join this new community. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, yes. there's a, that's, I mean, the reason I mention all that is, again, just to try and give folks a sketch of the, the depth and texture of the covenant theological background. Maybe we need yes. a kind of, course on covenant theology or something <laughs> or a seminary or teach it might be helpful. it might be helpful. Yeah. okay well listen uh, we've been talking for 50 minutes i don't want to go too much over an hour sure we we've got we've touched on some of our history we've delved into a bunch of these theological issues and yeah. we've touched on some of the dangers some of the mistakes we could make yeah but we've we're blessed here all saints we've got um folks in the congregation mm-hmm. who are baptists yep most people of course are paid baptist mm-hmm. i mean our constitution allows for people who are Baptist to join. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I'd want to say, you're welcome. But I'd also want to say, let's take this time to think through those things. Yeah. And it might be that this transition moving to us as a church is a good time for you to reflect on this distinctive theological outlook, which is different from your Baptist past. Right. Then at the same time, we've got relationships with, whether it's the Baptist guys at the first Tuesday cigar night or mm-hmm. whether it's um, other friends you've got I've uh, got uh, neighbours across the street who are Christians mm-hmm. they're Baptists yeah what would you say Tyler as you look back at your past mm-hmm. look at our present situation here 
Are there any dangers that you'd want to urge all of us to be aware of as we're thinking about navigating these questions? Any things that strike you? Dangers as a community? Yeah, or as individuals. Th things we could do well or badly, and, and this is how we should watch out. We don't do them badly. Yeah. Well, um, one thing would be, uh, and, and you mentioned, I think you mentioned this, but um, to not, there's, there's always a danger of what we've considered um, the common language of primary versus secondary issues. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And by communicating secondary issues, communicating unimportant issues, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so what we would, while we would want to have grace and welcoming mm -hmm. to other Christian brothers and sisters of various flavors of Christianity, um, <laughs> um, we would want to, you know, Let's um, talk about this stuff. Yes, yeah. we would want to talk about it. Yeah, we don't want to let it go. We want. We don't. It, it is. It was important to Christ, our covenant head, and yes, yes, yes. and our husband, and so it needs to be important to us. Right, right. And and we're we all need to be working towards better understanding, mm -hmm. like you say, not just you know defending it um, or mm. come at, uh, you know accusations or. Fighting, yes, yes, um, yes. but actually understanding what exactly yeah. it means, um, yeah. how exactly that changes the relationship or um, broadens, expands, brightens the relationship between us and our God. Yeah, I like that. Um, and so that that would be first danger um, is not letting it go. And of course, the opposite danger is is one that's real as well. Is is um, making sure that it's not always a subject for fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a I've got a new hammer and everything's a nail. Yeah, particularly right. your head, smack. Right, smack, exactly, smack, and that's yeah. you know, to some extent, it's normal. And and I also think that um, you've mentioned this before of, of theology is best done in community. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there is a sense in which you know uh, I've had the experience of showing up to get-togethers and guys who are new to Calvinism, that's all they want to talk about is Calvinism. New mm. to paedo-baptism, that's all they want to talk about is paedo-baptism. Yeah. And while, you know, we don't want to talk about that 100% of the time, always, um, mm. there is a sense in which, you know, they're, I think, rightly feeling out something yes. that they're missing, yes. where they want to process these things in yeah. community. And so when they get the opportunity to come around people who are also processing or in various stages of processing those issues, yeah. thinking about it, they want to actually... Mm get feedback, throw ideas out, and, mm. you know, have somebody punch holes and, and make yeah. them go back to Scripture to, to weigh out what they're thinking. No, I like that. I like that. And I think that the, um, uh, your description of the primary-secondary is exactly how this set of issues was wrongly characterized in the student context that I was in pushing 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, that's a secondary issue. We don't talk about that. It's like, well, there's... There are things of first importance, First Corinthians 15, right. but Paul actually spends quite a lot of his time talking about things that aren't on that list. Right. And you probably noticed that if you look carefully. Right. So then to do that in community, and I guess I wanna, I'd want to add a few more, just two maybe more um, elements to that. Mm -hmm. The first is what I say to almost everybody who expresses interest in joining here, which is take your time. Yes, yeah. I, I would love for people to reach really, really stable, informed, solid conclusions. Yes. Even if it took them twice 
or three times or five times as long to do so. Yes, because we both, don't both for your for yourself and especially if you're leading a family. Oh yeah, into yeah. this because it's so disorienting uh, for children, um, mm-hmm. wives. If guys kind of they're flying into reform Presbyterianism through one door with yes. so much inertia that they fly out the other <laughs> door at the opposite end yeah. six weeks later. Right. Um, to to realize how much of a change this is to to a family, for example, yes. and especially you know, your kind of comments on your extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, guys, think about what this means for your wife's relationship with her mum or her dad right. or her sister or your uncles and or whatever it is. And uh, and there's no rush. Really, I mean, it's not that there's no, it's not that there's no rush. You got a kid. I'd love for your kid to be baptized, <laughs> right. but it's not the kind of rush that means let's decide this by Wednesday and yes. act on it Thursday morning. Yes, and then okay, what what will help people to do that? I think your community point is really helpful and actually goes deeper even than that because um, in community doesn't just mean on the back porch uh, or over a cigar or talking in forum after worship mm-hmm. or even listening. To a podcast and listening to this in a sermon. It does mean all those things. And, and those things I hope are valuable. I hope this podcast is valuable. But I'll tell you what it also means. It means seeing it, seeing it done and lived out. Mm-hmm. And it's a tremendous joy to me to, to know of people in the congregation who actually came unconvinced. And sometimes within a week, well, no, a week, within a few weeks or a few months. Mm-hmm through this combination of hearing, teaching, and talking to people, and also seeing covenant family life lived out, yes, yeah. became, they became persuaded in the sense that, now I see what you mean. And I don't know quite how they describe it. That I'm trying to articulate it in a way that I think is faithful to their experience. Of this. Uh-huh. And, and actually, that terminates with a challenge to all of us, which is, look, what, what's the most compelling thing that a Christian family could do mm-hmm. or a Christian individual a single person in their 20s who's been raised in a Christian home what's the single most compelling thing they could do that will testify to God's covenant kindness mm-hmm. to the children of his people in such a way that it commends paid baptism the most compelling thing is to be the most godly faithful Christian families they can be because frankly if people see that Mm -hmm. it will allay these understandable fears of the kind that say your father expressed or people in that church expressed or that other people might express that this just looks like box ticking or kind of cutesy ritual for the kids yes if we can genuinely live lives that show that it's not that Mm -hmm. that show that what we believe and what we're trying to live out is our conviction that God loves our kids and God welcomes our kids and wants our kids to have the sign and then he calls us to raise them in faithfulness and cheerfulness so that they grow up worshipping God. If we, right. if, if people see that happening, mm-hmm. then I think we will see the trickle become more of a consistent flood and God be praised. Yeah. Um, because it, I think it's a wonderful blessing to be yes. able to share this with people as they grow in maturity in yes. Christ and their understanding of our relationship with Him. Yeah, and it's both it's both within your own family um, yeah. and representation to those outside your family, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And displaying you can't fake it, right? Right. Genuine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, 
you're displaying humility and you're displaying the reliance in that humility upon God and his word and mm-hmm. centering all of those things there. And that's, it goes back to the point of being confident in good conscience, making these decisions mm-hmm. and then also walking in obedience of, yeah, of yeah. there's the patience aspect to it, but it's also um, in that of, this is what God, this is what mm-hmm. I am convinced by good conscience that this is what God is calling me to yes, in yes, obedience. Yes. I am going to walk right. in that. So once you've read Genesis 17, you go down to Deuteronomy 6 uh-huh. and hear, O Israel. Yes. You, you shall teach it to your children as you're walking along the way. And, yes. you know, it's got to be part of your life, yes. part of your home, part of your relationships. Yes. And yeah, that that's compelling. Yes. That's compelling. Um, another And another point on that, because, uh, you know... As a um, married and several children, mm-hmm. um, one of which was already baptized right, um, before right. coming here, um, so w- there was some explanation that needed to happen. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, sh- uh, our oldest was baptized by a profession. She was young, but she had yeah. made a profession, and we felt great, you know, good enough by to, to <laughs> baptize, and, and so did the church that we attended at the time, and mm. and so. There was some explanation, but there was also it was a great moment um, in the plethora of moments that we experience as pa- as parents to repent mm. of a yeah. misunderstanding mm. of God's commandments of yeah. of the Word of God. And again, it's it's not trying to say that um, it it is trying to say that if we are misunderstanding the word of God and we are misunderstanding God yeah, in a sense. And it does matter. Right, and right. it matters. And and the repentance there is not kicking ourselves, mm. um, but it is it is a change, it's a turn, and it's a, and it's a good opportunity both to my wife and to my children to mm. say, as they're asking me, why the change, Dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me to say, I'm not God. Yeah, and, I, we, we, we understood this and we thought we did and... We now think we got that wrong. Exactly. So, well, that's a. I mean, what a great place to end because um, if we can, without self-recrimination and mm-hmm. bludgeoning ourselves over the head and and wrong feelings of guilt, but nonetheless be ready to say, look, uh, I might have made a mistake for a number of years. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. In that case, we'll, we'll we'll repent, we'll change, and we'll move on, and and God be praised. Yes. All right. Um, listen, thank you very much um, for those of you listening. I hope you found that helpful. I uh, I always find it helpful talking to this man. Tyler, thank you for joining us. And, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, I should say, just one final point. Um, uh, there may be any number of you listening to this who uh, thinking, uh, okay, I, I've got some questions, or, or that's really helped. I now, I now want to do something. Uh, if you're at All Saints, please, 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 um, go and talk to Pastor Neil, or come, <laughs> <laughs> or come and talk to me. Um, uh, we would be delighted to talk to you. I'm sure Tyler would be happy to chat with you as well. Now, there's a small chance that uh, you're at a church elsewhere. Um, we uh, do have some folks listening who aren't um, here at All Saints, and, uh, well, nice to have you with us as well. Uh, just for you personally, I would say, please, uh, keep uh, in communication with your pastor, mm. elders, and so on at your church. We want to encourage you to honour them, and certainly, yes. um, I can say for all of the people who... Uh, are near Fort Worth and end up moving to us from other churches, perhaps because they move house or for whatever other reason. One of the very first things we will we always do is say, "Well, listen, you should go back and talk to your home church about this. Have you done that? Have you have you talked with your pastor about the convictions that are making you want to make this shift? Because we want to honour 
the body of Christ everywhere. And we are so blessed around here in uh, Fort Worth to be surrounded by lots of different churches of different stripes. And we don't want to um, uh, speak ill of or think ill of or despise any of them. So yeah. have that in mind. Do feel free to get in touch, but get in touch first with your pastor and maybe he will have something helpful for you to read or to think about, which will lead you to grow in faithfulness to Christ. I think we're done. Thanks, Tyler. Once Thank again. you. All right. God bless to all of you. And bye for now. Thank you.